This is the Invest It Best podcast, a show about investing and financial markets where you'll hear from some of Australia's top investment analysts and fund managers about their views on the market. The Invest It Best podcast is brought to you by Wilson's Advisory, one of Australia's leading financial advisory firms with a proud and successful history spanning over 125 years. All information discussed in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is the Invest It Best podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Invest It Best podcast. My name is Ted Richards and this episode I'm speaking with Pete Robertson, Head of Investment Strategy, Fixed Income at Challenger Investment Management. Pete is responsible for Challenger Investment Management's multi-strategy credit portfolio, including the Challenger IM Credit Income Fund, the Challenger IM Multi-Sector Private Lending Fund, and the Challenger IM Private Lending Opportunities Fund. Pete has over 17 years' experience investing in public and private credit markets in Australia, the US, and Europe, with a particular focus on securitized credit. Pete, welcome to the Invest at Best podcast. Thanks for having me, Ted. Now, Pete, I'm really keen to demystify private credit because it is something, an asset class that listeners are are likely to be hearing more and more about. But before we jump into it, Pete, as I said in the intro, you've worked in Australia, Europe, and the US. So I'm just interested, the the best city that you've worked and lived in? Yeah, so I I guess there's two answers to this, one's professional and one's personal. I'm a bit of a foodie. I love to go out and try new foods and, and new things and I've travelled a lot with work globally. I must say Japan's probably my favourite place to eat for work. I've never lived in Japan professionally, so I'm not commenting professionally, but certainly on business trips, you know, when you're working with clients there, there's a real formality to the experience of eating there that goes beyond just the taste of the food. So I love doing business in Japan and love working with Japanese clients. Professionally, I think Australia is probably the most rewarding market that I've worked on. I spent a lot of time in US and European markets during the global financial crisis and the velocity of transactions was amazing. It's kind of like dog years working in those markets. You get so much experience from a short time over there. But every transaction I would look at, there'd be at least half a dozen people, if not more, looking at the same transaction. So it was a very competitive environment. Because of that, a highly efficient environment whereas here in Australia it's far less efficient often you know we're one of a very small number of people looking at a transaction I think that sort of you know going into uncharted territory or going into assets or exposures or businesses that that really you know there's been a limited universe of people looking at them underwriting them and and assessing and pricing them that's been a really enjoyable part of the the last decade or so that I've been back in in Australia. Well, that's very interesting, and we might touch on a few things in your answer there. Let's jump straight into the episode. Now, as I mentioned, the goal of this episode is to demystify private credit as an asset class. So let's start off on first base. Pete, what exactly is private credit, and how is it different to public credit? Yeah, I think this is a great question, Ted, in the way that you're framing it in so much as how is it different to public credit? Because I like to define private credit by defining what it isn't, not what it is. So it isn't public credit. It isn't a public bond. 
It isn't a loan which is syndicated or, or, or sold to a large range of investors. It's not traded on an exchange or via a clearinghouse, so it's not easily accessible. And it doesn't have a credit rating typically provided by an external rating agency, so it's not easily underwritten. There's not much, if any, publicly available information on a borrower. And, that, and to me, this is probably the most salient point about the public versus private distinction is, is the lack of publicly available information on a borrower. So most times we're accessing information via a, a non-disclosure agreement that we sign with a borrower, and that allows us to access information on the company, which we use to complete our analysis on, on public deals. We don't need to do that. All that information is, is readily available. Uh, but even then, you know, I think there's a big grey area between this public and private credit, and there's no real definition or hard line between public and private. So you might have, you know, a loan that isn't externally rated, but it's large and it's been syndicated to a wide range of investors. Or you might have a loan that, you know, has been rated, but is only held by one investor. So there's really no hard definition. It's really a big grey area. And for us, what we're focused on is making sure regardless of, you know, where on that continuum the loan sits, where we're getting appropriately compensated for the risk. Pete, I think you might have touched on a part of this in your earlier answer, but I am interested, how do the US and the European private credit markets compare with where we're at in Australia right now? I think the maturity of those markets is far beyond the Australian market. Uh, and, and part of that is really because they've had significant banking crisis, which have really changed the nature of the way that credit is intermediated within those financial systems. So one of the good things about Australia is we haven't had that. We've got a strong, stable financial system and our experience with credit losses is, is extraordinarily low compared to, to the US and European markets. But because we haven't had that stress, there hasn't been a need to disintermediate the banks. So for borrowers to seek out alternative forms of finance and, and frankly, within Australia, equity is the primary source of capital that businesses operate, whether it's because of our taxation system or just because the way our superannuation system works with a high allocation to equities or any other reason, you know, which could be cultural or system-based. We have a large banking system, but it's primarily focused on the household sector, heavily equitized system. And that actually means that the private lending market hasn't been developed enough, as much, I would say, compared to those more mature markets, which have really gone through significant financial stress. And coming out of those losses has been the private lending market. So Australia is a much more defensive market by nature. So there's less credit in our system overall, but it's not as large. And that's a point I think that's, that's quite rapidly changing. And we've seen, you know, coming out of the, the COVID pandemic, really some significant changes in the way that private lenders and non-bank lenders really intermediate credit flows within Australia, which is really encouraging for the growth of the market here. So it's kind of my next question, you know, isn't it the role of the banks to finance these deals? The, for example, the CBA, they're a quality bank. Surely they can recognise the opportunities. Why aren't they active in this space? Yeah, look, it's, it's a great point. I think banks are really the original private lenders. And if we look at the, the definitions when you, when you ask me what exactly private credit is and what, what I said was talking about lending bilaterally or amongst a small group, Lending on the basis of non-public information and, and lending in loan format, it's not easily accessible. That's, that's exactly what banks do. But what they really do very well is high volume, low margin, off-the-shelf 
lending, where they're less strong, is in dealing with a borrower who has some complexity to their story. So they might be owned by a private equity sponsor. They might be going through an acquisition or an expansion that requires a lot of capital expenditure, or they might need a fast turnaround to a loan or more flexible terms and conditions. And those are the areas in which banks are typically less competitive because, you know, it's not their core business. And the thing about the Australian market, even what's significant to us as a private lender may not be significant to a CBA who's intermediating a huge amount of credit flow within our financial system. So, you know, we're not seeking to originate hundreds of billions of, of dollars of credit in the way that CBA is. And so we can find those niche markets and niche opportunities that I described earlier around that complexity to source and, and deliver excess returns. I think it's also important just to highlight the fact that banks do operate within private lending markets and we operate alongside them quite often in those markets. So, you know, even though there are reasons why people go to non-bank lenders and, and don't go to banks as no two banks are alike. You know, CBA has a different strategy to, to ANZ and certainly some of the regional banks have different strategies to the majors. And that's equally true of the non-bank lenders. So, you know, no two non-bank lenders are alike as well. So I think there are areas where maybe a CBA will operate that a Bendigo Adelaide bank will not. And equally, you know, we may overlap with CBA on some things and we may may overlap with Bendigo on others. Listeners that have, have heard and read about private lending, they may be familiar with the term of the liquidity premium. Pete, can you tell us what that means and and in your answer, maybe if you could possibly quantify what the size of the premium is. Yeah, I think this is a point that's really central to the argument in favour of allocating to, to private credit. So the liquidity premium is basically the excess return you get for doing a private deal of the same credit risk and tenor of a public deal. So we might find a private deal that has, say, a 10% per annum return for, for three years and our independent credit risk team may assess that transaction as having a, a double B credit risk profile, which means it's, it's just below investment grade in terms of its credit quality. And if we compare that to a double B rated public deal of the same tenor, trading at a 7% yield, and that liquidity premium is 3% per annum. So effectively, every year, we're getting a 3% excess return over and above a, a public benchmark or a public company of the, the same credit risk price. So it's effectively that additional compensation you can demand from the borrower in private market as compensation because it's going to be difficult for you to sell the loan um, to someone else after you, after you make that loan, which is the, the liquidity part of the equation. And so we've been tracking these liquidity premiums for close to 20 years now. And we found that over that period, it's really averaged through multiple cycles around 2 to 3% per annum. And that might not sound like a lot, but if you compound that over a five-year horizon, your total return is, is looking at sort of 15 to 20% higher, which is significant and I think interesting in so much as you can kind of lock that in at the outset. So you can allocate to the market knowing what the liquidity premium is make the loan and say, okay, if this loan pays me back, then that's what I'm getting. I'm getting that 15 to 20% in excess returns over the next five years. Is there a flip side to that coin in terms of it being unlisted and you know it being private? What does that often mean if someone needs, say, a redemption you know, in a couple of years? Yeah, I think it's really critical when you invest in private markets that you make sure you're investing in a vehicle 
where the terms of the vehicle match the liquidity of the underlying investments because the way that you erode that excess value or that premium that's available in markets is being a forced seller because there's not a readily available secondary market. If, if I make a loan to a borrower under an NDA, I'm the only one who's got access to that information. Oftentimes I have to seek the consent of that lender to disclose that information to other parties. So if I'm trying to sell a, a loan for company A to you, Ted, you know, you're going to rightfully say, well, I know nothing about this company. It's a private company. You've got to give me a very attractive price to, to compensate me for all the work that I'm going to need to do to even understand whether I want to lend to the company. And so there, you can erode significant value if you are a forced seller in private markets. And so this is absolutely not an investment that sits well in funds that offer don't redemptions or don't have appropriate protections around their funds. I do think, you know, having scared you with all the talk about the lack of secondary market liquidity, I do think it's important to call out one of the positive features of private lending as opposed to other forms of private assets, so private equity or, you know, direct commercial real estate investing or infrastructure and the like. Within private lending markets, the loans tend to be short. So you're charging a borrower an excess return. The borrower is paying that for, let's say, convenience factor. But at some point, they're going to want to replace you with cheaper debt. They're going to want to go back to CBA and say, hey, I've acquired that company. I've executed the transition. My CapEx needs have normalized. Will you lend to me now? And the CBA, with a lower cost of capital than the challenger investment management, will step in and will step out. And so not in these loans for a long period of time. Typically, our dedicated private lending funds have average maturities in the one to two year type time frame and very rarely maturities extending beyond five years. So the bulk of the funds are returned to investors in a reasonably short time frame with a pretty defined maturity schedule. So you can see the underlying assets of the fund and when that money is coming back. So it's not like within private equity markets, let's say other sort of equity-like markets where you actually need to execute a sale on the asset to see those funds returned. Now across our funds in, in particular, the principle of matching liquidity of our investments with the redemption terms of the funds is, is really of paramount importance for us. So within the credit income fund, we hold a mixture of public and private investments. We've employed a fund level gate, which only allows 10% of the fund to be redeemed in a month to allow us to run off private exposures steadily in the event that we do receive redemptions. But in the pure private strategies, we have to go further than that. So what we do there is we have a best endeavours liquidity feature and, and provide for liquidity on a quarterly basis. Typically what we do is guide investors to around a quarter to a third of the portfolio maturing per annum, which gives an investors a good sense of you know, the redemption profile of, of the funds. But certainly this is a really important component um, of any analysis around whether you want to allocate to private credit or not is making sure that you're not a forced seller and, and that the fund is structured appropriately to accommodate the liquidity profile of the assets that you're taking on. Now let's zoom in on some particular sectors you like and perhaps you know any deals you've been recently doing. And in your answer, maybe any particular type of companies that you look to avoid? Yeah, look, I think one of the interesting things about private markets is it's, it's kind of a by appointment market. And what I mean by that is you can't simply go out and say, I'm going to build a portfolio based on sort of macroeconomic view that I have of 
the market. And so I want to have a, a 15% allocation to, to tech, a 10% allocation to healthcare and so on and so forth. And for me as a, an originator of transactions, one thing I've found is that I don't want a sponsor to not call me about a particular transaction because I said I'm not looking at a, a sector. I want to see everything and I want the ability to assess whether I can put together a, a set of terms and conditions around a loan or price to mitigate the, the fundamental credit risk of, of a borrower and then build a, an appropriately diversified portfolio. So you can almost think of it as we're constantly tinkering with our portfolio as new potential investments come in. And so our views on sectors and, and individual companies can evolve around the construction of the portfolio at a given point in time, the availability of those opportunities in the market, as well as our underlying macro views which are absolutely a critical part of the process if you're the originator of transactions which you mentioned in the answer how do you come across these opportunities yeah sourcing the deals is important and part of the answer i gave before is making sure that i that the sponsors call us about about deals or, or, or counterparties call us about about transactions so we we call it a first call mentality we want to get calls on deals we want those calls to be early but we also want to find that volume of opportunities at the right price. So we don't want people just to call us because they know that we will give them the, the cheapest rate or they know that we won't do, you know, an extensive due diligence process. I want people to reach out to me because we can do something else of value. And typically those things that people come to us for is, is certainty of execution. So they might want to acquire a business. They need to know that the lender is there and is not going to walk them down a path and then say, I need you know, additional terms, additional pricing, or I'm just not going to walk away from the transaction. They might need speed of execution. So often, you know, a quick turnaround, which we talked about banks before, banks traditionally aren't as able to, to turn transactions around in a short time frame. They might need scale of capital. So they have to go to, you know, bigger businesses like ourselves that can provide, you know, substantial licks of capital rather than corral you know, a dozen investors to, together to provide the same check that, that an individual manager could provide or just pragmatism on process. So, you know, dealing with someone on a repeated basis over, you know, multiple cycles and multiple years and knowing how a negotiation is going to go and people are going to be pragmatic on that is critical as well. So for us, as I said, we've been doing this for almost 20 years. We started out in 2005 in private lending markets. So a lot of the sourcing that we do comes from existing and long-term relationships that we've had with the private equity sponsors, investment banks, advisors, law firms, non-bank lenders, even other lenders, even banks can be great sources of introduction because we're not competing with them for transactional banking business when we make a loan. So when I talk about our ability to um, originate, it's important to clarify. I mean, Challenger Investment Management, not just the individuals within Challenger. So I'm a good guy. Ted, we haven't known each other for a long period, but trust me, I'm a, I'm a good guy. I'm good to deal with and put on transactions. But if I don't speak for a meaningful amount of capital or have discretion over that capital, I'm not going to be as compelling as a counterparty for, for people to, to deal with and sourcing opportunities will be more challenging. You mentioned you've been doing this for over 20 years and but this is an asset class where that's been getting not just a lot of attention but a lot of new entrants so maybe if we can just kind of touch on risks and focus in what are the risks that investors need to consider 
Yeah, look, we did some analysis around this the other day and actually it was close to that are private lending, so non-bank lenders in the Australian markets, and that doesn't even include the superannuation funds who have their own direct lending businesses. So there's certainly been an influx of capital and an influx of new managers into the space. I think key things for investors to consider when they're looking at a manager is really counterpoint to lack of transparency in the space is, is as an investor, if I put myself in the investor's shoes, is how do I overcome the lack of transparency? I really want to know what a manager's process is around the assessment of credit risk. And I can go into that a little bit around how we assess credit risk of companies. Yeah, that, that'd be good. Let's, let's zoom in on that now. Sure. So, you know, this is something I think in the absence of external credit rate ratings, which is the major hurdle for investors, they look at a private lending business that, that says, okay, I'm delivering these sorts of returns. The business has gone through a credit cycle. You don't know if those returns are simply a function of taking additional risk or are simply related to that liquidity premium that I discussed earlier. So really having a robuster process around the assessment of credit risk is critical. So what we did when we started this back in 2005 is we set up an internal rating agency effectively. So it's our own in-house sort of equivalent of a standard in pause or a Moody's that effectively on each deal we do comes up with their own assessment independent of challenger investment management of the credit risk profile. Now, because we lend across a wide range of underlying strategies, there's no one fixed approach as is the case with Moody's and S&P, they've got, you know, methodologies up the wazoo. There's hundreds of them around different, how they underwrite credit risk in different geographies and for different asset types. Well, all of them involve fairly detailed modelling of cash flows. Essentially, what we're trying to do within our business and what the rating agencies are trying to do is project cash flows associated with a business or an asset under a range of different scenarios, being, you know, different interest rate environments, inflation environments, different valuation multiples, there may be currency risk involved, or what other variable we can see that would really impair our loan. We'll also look at the borrower from a qualitative perspective and really trying to understand the conditions affecting the business, the cash flow generation, as well as their potential needs for capital expenditure in the future. And all of that will feed into that scenario analysis, that quantitative modelling that we that we do. We'll spend a lot of time on the, the governance of the business because that's not something, you know, that, that's readily available. A lot of these private companies may not have fully independent boards. And so, you know, the incentivization of the underlying management team and the sponsor is really important to assess. And then the last thing I think, which is very topical right now, is we're looking at what might cause a step change in the business. Things like cyber risk, climate risk, stranded asset risk for us, they're all front of mind because the outcomes can be so binary with respect to these businesses. So you look at different sectors and, and they can be affected to a different degree by a cyber event, for instance. So that's something certainly front of mind in our considerations. And that last point, those break points that I talked about, they're not easily fed into a rating agency methodology. So that's something that's really an overlay for us in terms of when we're looking at a business you know, we just have to think about how they're exposed. And so out of all that, you know, effectively we get a credit rating and then that feeds into our process around the negotiation of terms and conditions and pricing. We've touched on a lot of risks, breakpoints, red flags. Maybe let's explore the returns that 
challenger investment management funds have, have been targeting? Yeah, like uh, I'm a credit guy, so I feel really comfortable talking about risks. But absolutely, the you know the compensation and the, and the flip side of it is the returns that you get. And we talked about the liquidity premium. Effectively, you know that for us, it all starts there. So our, our output of our rating process is to say, okay, if we've got something of a particular rating profile, and we'll look at that public benchmark and we'll say we want to generate a liquidity premium that that achieves more than two percent per annum. That's sort of our target across all the strategies. It varies given different points in the cycle, but if we're going to allocate capital into private markets. And one point about our business that I should mention is that while we do invest a substantial amount of capital within private markets, we don't invest exclusively within private markets. So I'm certainly not evangelical about the space. If the liquidity premium is not there, we'll just allocate to public markets. We'll earn a return there and then we'll rotate back into private markets when the opportunity returns. Now, from our experience outside of market shocks, you know, whether it's March of 2020 or the global financial crisis, you know, most of the time there is a, a liquidity premium there that is compensation for going into private markets, you know, that's in that sort of 2 to 3% range. So through the cycle where we're spending most of our time on private markets, we've got strategies ranging from cash plus 3% to cash plus 8% target return. So call that in today's current interest rate environment, minus 7% going up to mid-team return profiles. We tend to be pretty defensive in what we do, so we don't take equity or warrants in a business. So this is a pure income-based return. So if you're an investor going into our strategies, what you'll tend to find is the vast bulk of the return that you get is cash distributed income payable to you via the payments on, on the loans as opposed to, you know, I, I guess a variable and unknown upside in a transaction depending on markets and ultimately valuation multiples. Pete, one final question. From your experience with your clients, how is private credit usually positioned in a portfolio from an asset allocation perspective? Again, these are things that vary through time. I think what we found more recently is, you know, with a positive correlation between traditional fixed rate, fixed income products and, and equity is something that's floating rate, so it doesn't have that high correlation with traditional fixed income. High income generation and with a bit more downside protection, that's really attractive to investors. So I guess the answer is kind of twofold. Within your credit allocation, there's really more and more data around that liquidity premium, that excess return that's been available. I think if you look at the US, there's an index called the Cliffwater Direct Lending Index that's generated since 2005, about a 9% per annum return. Credit Suisse Leverage Loan Index, which is a public syndicated loan index, has only done about 5% per annum. So that excess return that's available is there and people can see it now. So within credit allocation, it, 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 it's certainly starting to be something that people think more and more about. But equally, they're thinking about it in the context of a equity replacement or a replacement for an equity fixed income sort of 60-40 type portfolio. So you're looking at kind of a defensive alt positioning within portfolios where you can take some equity risk off the table and take some fixed income risk off the table, not have to worry about whether, you know, your fixed income is going to be a hedge for your equities and be comforted with the income generated by the product, which today in the current interest rate environment is pretty attractive, even relative to the dividend yields on listed equities. So we're really seeing more and more people allocating in, in that way. 
So initially it was just out of their credit allocations. People were quite cautious about liquidity budgets. Now we're starting to see a bit more of a nuanced view around liquidity. So you know they will appreciate the fact that it is more liquid than private equity or infrastructural or real estate and starting to see it as, as a sort of blending out of multiple portfolios, which has greatly increased the allocation, certainly from institutional investors. And we're starting to see that go far more broadly, which I'm sure is something you've been observing on your side as well. Yes. Well, Pete, thanks very much for taking the time. It's been a fascinating discussion. We, we might wrap it up there, but yeah, thanks very much for taking the time. Terrific, Ted. I really enjoyed it as well. So thanks for having me. If you are interested in what Pete discussed, please speak with your Wilson's Advisory Advisor. And if you're not yet a client, you can use the contact link in the show notes or on the website to request a call. Once again, Pete, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And thank you for listening to the Invest at Best podcast. This podcast has been prepared by Wilson's Advisory and Stockbroking Limited. Wilson's has not independently verified any of the information given in this podcast and no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made as to the accuracy or completeness of the information and opinions contained therein. All effort is made to ensure information was accurate at the time of recording. No reliance should be placed on this podcast in making any investment decision and past performance is no indication of future performance. The directors of Wilson's advise that they and persons associated with them and Wilson's may have an interest in financial products referred to in this podcast.